You remember two weeks ago, way back two weeks ago, like midsummer, whatever, um, we talked about from Luke chapter 2, we looked at verses 22 through 38, and we looked at Simeon and Anna, and I talked uh, a couple weeks ago when we were looking at these two uh, people of God that we were probably going to revisit, uh, come back and talk more about what we can learn from Anna specifically. If you remember, Anna was a prophetess. Uh, she was waiting, longing for the Messiah to come. And that was expressed in, in what she was doing, how she was living. Uh, she was fasting and praying, worshiping. She was a, a widow, it says. She had been a widow for many years. In fact, she had been married for only seven years. And then from that Seven years when her husband died until she's 84 in the text in Luke chapter 2. She committed herself to the Lord. It says in in verse 37 of Luke 2, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Just wonderful, wonderful picture of loving the Lord. And so today I want to... Uh, revisit what we talked about with Anna, who, who is a great example for us. And I want us to ask ourselves, here's Anna, this prophetess, waiting, longing for the Messiah to come, the redemption, it says, of Jerusalem. Remember at the end of the text two weeks ago, after she sees Jesus, she rejoices over him, she goes, it says, to tell everyone who, like her, we're waiting, longing for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so there's a group of them, but we get the window into Anna. And so as we think about Anna and her longing for the coming of the Messiah, the question I want to put before us is this. Should we, as recipients of all that Anna longed for, she's longing for the redemption that was to come. She's longing for the Messiah. And just let's pause and think about that for a minute. Okay, what is the fulfillment of what she's longing for? Jesus comes, right? The Messiah comes. We're looking back on that truth. Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. She's longing for him to come. And when the Messiah comes, this great king that comes to earth from heaven, he doesn't come and make this proclamation, all who are able follow me. Right? No, he comes to enable. He comes to seek and save the lost. He comes and and says, uh, if you want to come after me, uh, anyone that wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then he leads the procession to the cross. He lays down his life for his sheep. Dies and receives the punishment that we deserve. This king, this is the one that Anna was waiting for. And so the question I put before us is this. Should we as recipients of all that Anna longed for, should we express our desire for the coming of Jesus with any less fervor than she did? One of the texts that we looked at two weeks ago was 1 Peter 1, verse 13. That's where I want us to begin, at least, this morning. And so, it's just one verse, but let's stand together in honor of the Lord and just seeking Him and His heart as recipients of His Word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to us. And we need you. We need your help right now. I need your help in these moments right now. I need your help, I need your spirit. We need your help and we need your spirit. We want to receive your word with glad hearts. We want to be a people who love you, our God above all things. We need your help because so often we're not sober-minded and we're not preparing our minds for action. So would you speak to us this morning, Father? Would you please, please, bring conviction. 
Would you please bring repentance? Would you please pour out your grace on us, your people? Would you please encourage and comfort? Would you please strengthen? Would you please save? We pray for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love this text. I love uh, this verse, this, the mental picture that Peter gives us here in this verse is just so wonderful and so helpful. Therefore, as it starts, therefore. And so we ask, what is that therefore? Why does he say therefore then? What's he pointing back to? What are, we, what are we supposed to look for so we know why we're doing or going to do what's ahead? And so therefore, since... Verse 1, you've been called, elected, and chosen by the foreknowledge of God. And since, verse 3, according to His mercy, He has caused us to be born again. And since, verse 4, He's keeping an inheritance for us. And since, verse 5, He's keeping us for that inheritance. That is Wonderful. It's not the sermon, so I'm not going to go unpack it, but you, okay? You go and just meditate on those two verses back to back. He's keeping an inheritance for us, his people. In verse 5, he's guarding us. He's keeping us for that inheritance. Wonderful. And since, verse 10, this salvation is so great that the prophets longed to look into it and studied it very carefully... Since those things are true, since all we've been given in Christ, because of all we've been given in Christ, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope fully in His coming. Be like Anna. Don't set your hope in marriage. Don't place it in career opportunities. Set it fully, completely on the coming of Jesus and the grace that will be ours, that will be brought to us at His return. I love this about Anna. I mean, just this picture of this woman who just continues to come and pray night and day, night and day, worshiping the Lord, hopefully, because of all we've received in Christ, because who we are, because of what He has made us, because of His grace, hopefully in His coming, Peter says. And how does, he, how does he expect us to do that? How does He expect that to look? Well, He tells us at the beginning, preparing your minds for action And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. These two expressions are just so wonderful and helpful. Being or preparing your minds for action. That literally, in the Greek, literally means girding up the loins of your mind. In fact, you see a note there at the bottom, probably there's a little number next to preparing your minds for action. You look at the bottom of the page, and if you have an ESV, and it'll say, uh, girding up the loins of your mind. If you have a New American Standard, it just says in the text, girding up the loins of your mind. Well, that doesn't do anything for us in our culture, girding up the loins of your mind. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to go gird up the loins of my mind. It doesn't really do anything for us unless we understand what does that mean. What is Peter saying? What, what girding up the loins of our mind? We think of the culture, okay? What did they wear? They wore long robes, men and women, robes that they would wear. And so if they wanted to run or get somewhere unentangled, what they would do is take the, the hem of their robe, the base of their robe, and they would pull it up and tuck it into their belt, 
And the purpose of that is to pull in all of the, the loose ends of their robe, anything that would, would entangle them. And so they would, they would at times pull it up so that it was almost like making shorts. So they could run. They could run unencumbered and get from one place to another quickly and not be uh, caught up or entangled or tripped up along the way. And Peter's saying, do that. Do that with your mind. Pull in all the loose ends. Bring in all the things that are going to entangle you. All those loose ends, those, those frays that you just keep out in the world. All those things that you just keep out there to, to keep your attention in the world and in the body of Christ and in the word of God. All of those things, pull them in. You think of a Roman soldier. When a Roman soldier would, would get ready for battle, he would put on his belt and he would prepare himself. Put on his belt and, and tuck in the robe. Pull it in. Why? Because when he's in battle, he doesn't want anything to slow him down. He doesn't want anything to get tangled or caught up so that he trips and falls and loses the battle. He needs to be unencumbered. And so he would tuck in his robe. He would gird up the loins of his clothing so that he's unencumbered, unhindered, and can be single-minded in the battle. And Peter is saying, do that with your mind. That is wonderful. That's wonderful and wonderfully helpful. I would ask you, what are those things what are the things that you just have just flowing out so that when you're trying to run towards Christ, when you're thinking to run towards Christ, you're encumbered, you're tripped up, you're falling, you're slow, you're distracted. What are those things? Think, even right now, what are those things? You know what they are. What are those things? Peter says, pull those in. Prepare your minds for action. You think of Paul when he writes to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's what Peter's saying. Our aim is, ought to be, to please the one who called us. Please the one who caused us to be born again. Please the one who is keeping an inheritance for us. Please the one who is keeping us for that inheritance. Prepare your minds. Gird up the loins of your minds. What things are you pursuing in place of Christ that are hindering your relationship with Christ? Peter says, pull those in, repent, confess, cut off, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. We know that word sober, right? Be sober. It's exactly what Peter means here. Be sober-minded. Don't let anything. Don't let anything in that's going to intoxicate your mind from an all-encompassing love of Christ. Don't let anything in there that's going to distract you. Don't let anything in your mind, in front of your eyes, that's going to intoxicate your thinking. That's going to slow or dampen or, or, or dry your thinking about the Lord. Our desire, our desire should be to love God with all our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And so Peter says, be sober-minded. Stop allowing things in your mind. Stop looking at things that distract you from loving Christ and serving Christ, following Christ. What are those things for you? In Philippians chapter 4, In verse 8, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's a wonderful list. It's very helpful, right? For those of you who like checklists and things like that, and you're struggling with your thoughts, just use this. You're struggling with what you're giving yourself to and and what you're putting in front of your eyes and putting in your ears and putting whatever. Just look at this. Is it, just ask yourself, is this true? Is this honorable? Is what I'm putting into my mind right now, is it honorable? Is Is it just? Is this pure? Is this lovely? Is this commendable? Is this excellent? Is it worthy of praise? If it doesn't pass the test, then don't think that. Don't go there. Don't hope in that. Don't embrace those things. We're so quick. We're so quick and prone to embrace things that intoxicate our mind, to delight in things that intoxicate our mind. And Peter's saying, no, no, no. Set your hope fully on the grace that's to come, on the joy that's to come at the resurrection, the coming of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on that. And as you set your hope on that, Pull in those things that are distracting you and and, and empty your mind of the things that are contaminating it and intoxicating it. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 101, verses 2 and 3, I will ponder, David says, the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. I'll set before my eyes no thing that is worthless. Be sober-minded is how Peter says that. Be sober-minded. John Piper says this, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied on God's glory. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. And just so we don't think that being sober-minded only means don't put evil, disgusting, you know, blatantly sinful things in our mind. He goes on and says this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. Are you letting things in that are keeping you from God? Are you letting your mind be intoxicated? Remember what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine because that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep keeping filled with the Spirit. Be sober-minded. He says to the Colossians, set your thing, thoughts on, uh, minds on things above, not on earthly things. I'll be honest with you, one of the things that I worry about, one of the things that I, um, it causes concern in my heart is when I see uh, my children not fearing the Lord, when I see um, things in them that just say they, they, they have no fear of God whatsoever. And I was thinking about that this week, praying about that, and I thought, do I? Do I truly fear the Lord? Fear, fear the Lord. Not like cultural, how we've redefined fear as respect the Lord. Fear the Lord. That's what fear means, is fear, right? And we want to soften that. We want to read the passages that say, fear the Lord, and we want to say, well, it means respect. Well, no, he doesn't, right? Because Jesus says in Matthew 10, we've talked about this, don't fear him who can kill the body. 
What kind of fear is he talking about there? If someone comes up to me and holds a knife to my neck or a gun to my head, my first thought is that I respect that. <laughs> right? There's fear. We're trembling with fear in a circumstance like that. And then he goes on, don't fear him who could kill the body, but fear God, fear him who, when your body is dead, can cast both soul and body into hell. That's not respect. That's, we ought to tremble. We ought to be terrified of the thought of this one who could cast us into hell, into his wrath forever and ever and ever. Do we fear God? Do we truly fear God and our, our decisions, our thinking Is our sober-mindedness a result of our fear and trembling before the God of the universe? Do we fear Him? You look at the, the big picture, the story of the Bible. Can we ever walk away from the God who writes this story and makes this story happen without fear? I know sometimes people ask it, why is God so angry in the Old Testament? It seems like he's calmed down in the New. We're missing it if we think that. He poured out the fullness of his wrath on his son. We don't get the cross if we think God calmed down in the New Testament. His wrath is intense. His fury is real against sin. Do we fear him? Do we fear him? And is our sober-mindedness a result of true fear of God? I would ask you, does the way that you live and the decisions you make display to those watching that your hope is fully in the grace of God that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ? And is your hope saying that that is good? That that revelation and that grace is good and better than what we taste and experience here and now. What does that look like even? How how are preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded expressed in waiting and hoping for the coming of the Lord? Or as Peter says, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How is that expressed what does that look like? What is sober-mindedness and girding up the loins of our mind? What does that look like and how is that expressed? I'm going to offer two things this morning that we learn from Anna. It's prayer and fasting. I believe sober-mindedness and, and, and girding up the loins of our mind and setting our hope fully on the grace that would be brought to us is expressed in prayer and fasting. Prayer first. Two things on that. We could talk for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks about prayer and what the Bible teaches us about prayer. I'm sharing with uh, Michael, one of the elders, on Friday. Just feel like the Lord is, is renewing in me and teaching me again about prayer and reading this book on prayer and, and reading the scriptures and just been praying. I don't know about you, there's times I just feel like I, I don't even know how to pray. I feel like the Lord's renewing that and, and helping. When we, when we pray, just two things. We could talk about so many things, but I'm just going to give you two things. When you pray, be humble Be humble. Isn't that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6 when he teaches prayer? With his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. What is Jesus saying there in those first verses before we move on? He said, be be humble. 
Be humble when you pray. Come to your Father humbly. Don't be like the hypocrites who, who just, they want to be seen. They want people to hear them pray and think, this guy is holy. He really knows how to pray. He really knows how to use prayer language, prayer words. He really knows how to sentence things. God must be so impressed with him. I certainly am. Jesus is like, don't be like that. Be humble. Be humble when you come before your Father. And don't be like those who just go on and 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 on, thinking that if they just talk long enough, the Lord will listen. Don't be like that. Be humble, Jesus is saying. Pray then like this, our Father, our Father. You think of that? Nothing more humbling than that. How is he my father? Because of Jesus. His sacrifice. The punishment he received. So that we could be acceptable to the Lord. Adopted as sons and daughters. Our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Holy. Set apart in all of your ways. Come humbly. Your kingdom come Lord. Not mine. Not not my kingdom. I'm not... I don't want to live and build my kingdom here, Lord. I want your kingdom and all that it means, all the blessings that it it holds. I want your kingdom, Lord, and your will to be done, not just my will, here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is saying, come humbly to the Father. Come demanding Come as a child. Come humbly. He goes on after that. For if we forgive others their trespasses, or if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Isn't that true humility when we embrace the gospel? realizing we're not deserving of what we received and therefore we're, we're glad to respond to others with the grace, the forgiveness that we didn't deserve, that was lavished on us, as Paul writes to the Ephesians. When you pray, be humble. And secondly, when you pray, believe. Any of you struggle with this? I do at times. I struggle with this. When you pray, believe. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talking to his disciples. He says this to them. It says in verse 2, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Over and over, the Lord gave this picture of being childlike, having childlike faith, coming to him like a child. We have at least one of our children. I'm not going to say his name just in case. But we have one of our children, one of the younger ones. He will come and ask us for something. No. Like, 90 seconds later, he comes back. Dad, could I please? Didn't I just, just say no? Like, didn't, is my, I, you can still see my breath leaving the room from the first time I said, didn't I just say that? I've been thinking about that. And, and I, I mean, it's amazing. Every time he comes, this child, every time he comes, he believes with all of his heart, he's going to get what he's asking for. There's literally, there's no doubt in him. Dad, could I please, Dad, could I have, Dad, and I'm, to be honest with you, it irritates the crud out of us, okay? We're flesh and blood, and it's just like, are you kidding me? Like, I just told you, no, but lately we've been talking about it, That has been such a gift for us to think through because isn't that exactly the way that Jesus said to come to him? In Luke chapter 18, remember the story of the persistent widow? 
This is the story that the, that the Lord Jesus uses to teach people how to come to his father. It's about an evil king and this widow who comes to this king to ask for something. Could I have? I want justice. Could I have? Could I have? Could I have? And this king, no, 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 no. What did Jesus say? Finally, just because he's so fed up with this widow coming, the king finally is like, okay, 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 just give her what she's asking for. Just to shut her up. Right? That's the picture that Jesus gives. And then he takes it to another step. He says, how much more our loving, this is an evil king, how much more our loving heavenly father You think of Luke 11 where he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Do we ask? Do we come asking? Or are you like me so prone to asking and then just giving up? That's not a humble mindset of approaching the Lord. Now, we don't want to be like my child who at times when you say no goes off moping and whining. No, we, we come humbly and we leave humbly. We ask humbly and we wait humbly. We don't ask with this mindset of, of health and wealth and he owes me. That's not humility. It's I'm coming and I'm asking, Father, Now? Is it time now? Would you now? And I'm believing, I'm believing that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that I ask or imagine. When you pray, believe. Your Father in heaven loves you. He loves you. He has proven, he has proven that he loves you. God demonstrated, he proved our love, his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, he slaughtered his son, poured his wrath out on his son in our place. He's proven he loves you. He has demonstrated and proven, are you coming to this father who has adopted you and brought you into his family, caused you to be born again, to be adopted, called you out of sin and darkness? Are you coming to him believing that he loves you, believing in him, believing that he is able? So when you pray, be humble. And when you pray, believe in the second thing, The second way that I think preparing our minds and being sober-minded and hoping, waiting for the coming of the Lord is expressed is through fasting. Now there's more, actually had more things listed this morning and changed things up. I think the others will come if we're people who are praying and fasting. It's how Anna expressed it, right? I mean, this very real and practical picture of her coming day and night. You think of that picture of the widow who comes and just keeps asking the king. Isn't that wonderful with Anna? She never gives up. She never gives up. Her husband died seven years after she was married. There's a crossroads there, right? She can become bitter. This isn't right. She's dreamed her whole life of being a wife. And and this isn't fair. Seven years, that's not fair. That's not enough. How does she spend the rest of her life, the rest of her days, 60 years? Day and night, worshiping. She never leaves the temple, worshiping in prayer and fasting. At no point does it say that she, she, I've been asking and asking and asking and asking and asking for the Messiah to come and the redemption of Jerusalem to come and you just haven't answered so I give up. I'm going to go find a husband and just have a nice life for myself. I give up, Lord. I'm going to stop asking. She doesn't do that. She keeps asking and believing and fasting and depending on the Lord. Just a real and practical picture For those of us who are redeemed, those of us who are saved and born again, as Peter says, we ought to be thinking, I've been redeemed, I've been bought out of slavery, I've been bought out of sin, and I long, I long for Jesus to come back. I want to be with him. 
And so I'm praying for him to come and I'm expressing my longing by fasting. I was thinking through as we were out of town, just thinking through and looking over texts and making notes and praying over the passage. And it occurred to me, we're going to be talking about fasting on church picnic day. I thought, well, that's pretty funny. I texted a couple people, hey, we're talking about fasting and it's church picnic day. And as, as I've gone through and thought through it more this week, I thought, how generous of the Lord to orchestrate it this way. Because we really are legalistic minded so often. We hear with legalistic ears. And, you know, the pastor says you need to pray more. Well, I've got to pray more. And, and the pastor talks about fasting. Well, I guess I've got to fast now. And I've got to do this. And I've got to put this on my list. I've got to put this on my list. I've got to put this on my list. And what a, what a blessing to be able to approach this this morning and know we can fast for the glory of God and we can feast for the glory of God. You know, we can, we can uh, do both for his glory, and we ought to do both for his glory. And today we're going we're gonna to have this picnic later on, and we're going to feast. We're going to take food and partake together and have fellowship together with thanksgiving because of what Christ has done for us. We're, we're a people, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can feast to the glory of God. We can fast to the glory of God. We can, we can fast for the glory of self. And that's worthless. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6 after the, the, the text on the prayer. He says, when you fast, don't, be, don't, don't have gloomy faces like the hypocrites. Don't do it for the glory of self. Don't do it so that, you know, someone sees me and, oh, look, Tony, Pastor Tony's wearing a shirt that says, I'm fasting today, so don't offer me food. Man, I wish I was as holy as Pastor Tony. That's, that's, that's getting attention from people. This is when you fast, put oil on your head and then wash it off. Don't let people see that you're doing. Don't let people know that you're doing. Don't do it for the attention that you get from other people. Do it purposely for the glory of the Lord. We can eat for the glory of self. And that is just as meaningless However, we can eat and we can abstain as a means of glorifying God, and we ought to do both. Anna was purposeful in her fasting. She was praying and expressing her longing for the redemption that was to come. And one of the ways, one of the ways the Lord has given us to prepare our minds for action, to gird up the the loins of our minds and to be sober-minded is through fasting. You notice that Jesus doesn't command us to fast. Matthew 6, he assumes when you fast. It's not a command. He says, when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites. Do it before your father who sees what you're doing. In Matthew 9, we talked about two weeks ago, and they question why are your disciples not fasting. Said, well, how, why, why would they mourn when the bridegroom is here? The bridegroom's going to be taken away, and when he's taken away, then they will fast. They will fast. As a culture, it seems like our culture is not a culture that puts a value in fasting, our Western mindset of having so much. This last week was the end of of Ramadan, where Muslims around the globe for 40 days fast. And whether they're in Saudi Arabia or central Ohio, they fast, faithful Muslims. And they're doing it for a prize that is worthless. They're doing it striving, wanting to earn a salvation that they cannot have apart from Christ. Peter says, we've been granted that salvation. We've been given that salvation. It's just been handed to us. In fact, in verse 8, Peter says, in response to this salvation, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Because of the grace and mercy he lavished on you, though you were unworthy and vile before him, you love him. And part of loving someone is missing them when they're gone, right? Isn't that the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 9? When you love someone and they're away from you for a week or or two weeks or whatever it is, you miss them. You want them to come back. You long for them to come back. 
And what Jesus says is a means of displaying our longing because we love him and we miss that he's gone. He's not with us. We've tasted and seen how good he is, but he's gone away and he's promised to come again. And and what he says is a way that will express that longing is through fasting. Not just that, but as we fast, that ought to lead us to miss and love him more. Preparing our minds for action and girding up the loins of our minds when we abstain from temporary nourishment for eternal nourishment. And so quickly, some things that I want to encourage you with, things to consider, reasons we ought to fast and things to consider when you do fast. First, Matthew 4, verse 4. Remember Jesus in the wilderness, he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and It says in verse 3 that the tempter, Satan, comes and says to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, that's a legit temptation, right? I mean, some of you right now are like, gosh, I'd love a piece of bread, right? I mean, I can't wait for the picnic, and it's been hours. Forty days and forty nights that he's fasted, and Satan says, "Why don't you just? You're the son of God. Prove it. Turn the stone into bread. That would sound delicious. You're that hungry. Bread would sound so good. And what does Jesus say in response? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God." When we fast, we ought to fast purposefully. And there ought to be a demonstration of our dependence on God in our fasting and on his word. We ought, to, we ought to fast with our Bibles close to us. Feasting on his word when we're abstaining from food. Leaning on him for strength and nourishment. Acts 13, 1 through 4 in the early church we see in the beginning of chapter 13 there now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas Simeon who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene Menaean a lifelong friend of Herod and the tetrarch and Saul while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting the holy spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them then after fasting and praying they laid their hands on them and sent them off Sometimes we ought to fast because we need direction. Do you realize this this scene here changes the course of history? This, This is the Lord intervening in the midst of them fasting and praying and saying, I want you to set apart Saul and Barnabas and send them out. And they do. And we know what happens from there. The gospel going forth to the nations. Sometimes maybe we just need to Seek the Lord through fasting to know how to gird up the loins of our mind. We need direction. The third thing I would encourage you with is from Ezra, chapter 8. This is a wonderful text. Ezra, in in chapter 8, starting with verse 21, it says, Then I proclaimed a fast there. That's Ezra writing. I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Okay, there's what they want. Very simple, right? They want a safe journey for themselves, safety for their children, and for all of their goods. And so, Ezra calls for a fast, that they would humble themselves and ask God for that. And verse 22 is just wonderful for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him what is Ezra saying there he's like we had boasted in our God we boasted and, and said how great he is, how strong he is, and how he provides for his children. He protects them and provides for them. I was ashamed to go before the king and ask him for what we have boasted the Lord gives us. 
I couldn't do that. I couldn't bring myself to that. And so we went to the source. We prayed and we asked God for what we needed. I'll be honest, I don't do that often enough. Often, I'm okay with providing it myself, with making a way myself, with if I have a need, okay, I'm going to have to figure this out, and how are we going to meet this need or, or do this or overcome this obstacle or whatever, rather than first thinking, we have boasted, we have boasted in the Lord, let's not go to anyone other than him. Let's pray and fast and seek his face. Ezra says, I was ashamed to ask the king for what I have boasted that the Lord provides. And fourth, Matthew 9, 15, that we've looked at, excuse me, looked at already. About a fast for God's kingdom to come. The Pharisees come, why do your disciples not fast? <laughs> it says, because the bridegroom is still here, but when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. We ought to pray for his coming. And we ought to fast for his coming. And then Matthew 6, 16 through 18. When you fast, be humble. Be humble. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I would hate for us to come and, and look at these verses and talk about prayer and fasting and go away with this legalistic or arrogant or hypocritical mindset that says, I'm going to look more holy if I do these things. Jesus made you holy. And no amount of prayer and no amount of fasting and no amount of Bible reading and no amount of whatever you do will ever increase your spiritual state with God. It's all because of Jesus. And just like Peter's saying, we ought to respond in sober-mindedness and preparing our minds for action because of who we are in Christ and because of what he's done. And to be humble when you pray and be humble when you fast. I want to ask you, what are you hungry for? Is it more of God? Is it to see Him come? Is your hope fully set on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? What are you hungry for? I want to ask you, just in closing, would you commit to pray through that? Would you commit to pray even about what does fasting look like in your life? What ought it to look like? What could it look like? Would you consider that? I'm finishing this book on prayer and I'm going to be starting a a book by John Piper called A Hunger for God on Prayer and Fasting. I'd encourage you, don't don't come and tell me. Don't just, just between you and the Lord, even consider thinking more about this. I know that, I tell you, I mean, I feel like over this summer the Lord has cultivated in my heart more and more and more of a longing for His coming, to be with Him for new earth, But I will tell you, I don't believe that's expressed clearly enough in my living. Whether through praying or fasting or whatever else, I don't think that's expressed enough in my sober-mindedness, in my preparing my mind for action. And so would you pray through that with me and consider that? What does fasting look like as a person who has received the blessings of grace? And then just right now, let's just pray that the Lord would work that in us, that we would be a people that gird up the loins of our minds, that that are sober-minded and that are setting our hope fully, fully on His grace that's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your truth, Lord. And just ask for Your help. Lord, I know what You're doing in my heart. I don't know what You're doing in anyone else's heart, Lord. I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that you came, Jesus. I'm so thankful that you didn't call those who are able because you knew that we're not. You enabled us to come 
You drew us to you. You saved us because of your grace, not because of our worth. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who's the purpose of all this. It's not about Anna. It's not about Simeon. It's not about Paul. It's not about Timothy. It's not about me, Lord. It's not about any of us. It's about you, Lord. We want to please you. We're waiting, Lord. We're so, so looking forward to being with you forever. We haven't seen you, but we love you. We don't now see you, but we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because of what you have done for us. And we want to express that, Lord. We want to express our hope in how we live and what we're putting before our eyes and what what we're doing with our life. We want to pull in those things that are entangling us, intoxicating our thinking, Lord. So help us, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. We're going to sing and just encourage you as we're singing. They're going to pass out the elements. And just as we're talking about fasting, we can fast for communion with God, but we can also feast as a means of communing with the Lord. That's what Paul says about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10 as we've been talking about that. Is the bread that we break is not a participation, which is communion and fellowship with the body of Jesus. And the cup that we take is not a participation, communion, fellowship with the Lord. And even as you hold those, they're so small, right? They're just small. <laughs> this small cracker and this small cup. And, and here at the end of this service, looking forward to the picnic, we're hungry, right? And how is this going to bring us nourishment? Do we believe, do we believe that these symbols point to something so much greater and that the Lord's presence with us in taking the Lord's Supper is much greater nourishment than we could ever receive in any physical thing. That through the small cracker and the small cup that we're nourished in Christ as we believe, as we remember His body and blood, as we take it in a worthy manner, worshiping Him. Let's sing.